Welcome back to Side Quest, episode 25, Final Fantasy VII. Um, unlucky, or lucky, number 13. <laughs> I have back with me my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back. Hey, yeah, I don't know. I, we're, we're a little late for Halloween, so hopefully no superstitious uh, uh, ghosts will come after us here. Yeah, except for maybe ghosts from our past, like seem to be popping up more and more often in our it in our hero Cloud Strife's uh, life here. And um, also, uh, I think last time we ended with discuss discussing those ponderous mountains full of dragons with gold you could steal from them. And we moved on then into uh, into the green and onto a town called something uh, like. Uh, rocket launch area town right rocket launch area pad or something a place of that is very similar uh, it has a, a rusted tilted uh rocket in the middle sort of like a rusted or now skewed and not functional ideology or ruling principle in one's life it reminds me of book um three of the Aeneid, the place Booth wrote him, the land of sadness and memory, where Andromache, the, the wife of Hector, is now married to the, the traitorous Hellenus, the prophet who was squeezed for information by Ulysses to good effect to the mm. fall of Troy. So it's just as bad as Paris in some ways, uh, in terms of being traitorous. And they have a river there called Xanthos, but it's dried up, not like the strong river Xanthos around Troy. And Andromache is come upon by Aeneas while she's crying, thinking about her dead son, which is uh, both the same and opposite at a different level of analysis from Odysseus coming upon Nausicaa, who has all the hope and joy of oh, her yeah. husband in front of her, rather than this terrible uh, notion that the, the best years of her life are now behind her that Andromache has. And um, so I get that sense from this this land and and just to throw a second thing in there just the 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 dynamics between this man sid who we meet the captain as he's called uh captain yeah. and the cap that which is at the top that which does the thinking the head um uh you know the leading principle which is now grizzled and smoking a cigarette and uh, is called simply by its function without differentiation um, but his relationship with Shara, his assistant, yeah, you know, that's a very, very tricky looking relationship there that yeah. one of the characters asks whether they're married and he says, what gross, even though he's ordering her around and yelling things at her. And then we, even with the backstory. Yeah. I just want your take on that. Yeah. As you were talking about the, um, classical allusions there, I couldn't help thinking of, um, have you seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Yes. Okay, so Uncle Rico, right? <laughs> is yes. like that's Sid. Yes. That's Sid right there. He's he's a he's living uh on 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 his on his youth, like his youthful dreams. He hasn't let go of them exactly, but they're not quite um the same kind of aspirations. Now they're sort of stuck and um they they never were acted upon. Uh, and they have determined his entire life, right, for better or for worse. And in that respect, he's really different from your other party members, right? Because he's an older dude. 
and he does he has a different like way of speaking um that sort of reflects that kind of crotchety uh older guy you know and and a part of a big part of that is the way that he interacts with Shira and bosses her around and like blows up at her about not being polite um and like serving tea right but he's the one who's being like a total bore um and the way that he uh holds this this whole situation against her is just like really when you actually see what happened right you see the flashbacks it's really it's what it's like insane it's pretty much insane actually <laughs> uh yeah i mean it does seem insane because it's life yeah she she was he was the one that wanted to rush the launch and she was the one scientifically checking the oxygen levels they were not optimal so she went in there to fix them uh, without regard for her life she was being a perfect scientist but the thing is sid was trying to be a perfect hero and the thing is, he thought the ultimate thing to do would be to go to space. But ultimately, he did the ultimate heroic thing to do. He saved a life instead, which is, ethically speaking, a far more impressive feat, right? Even than the scientific feat of making it out to, um, you know, outer space, even though that had been his dream. It's as if there was an overarching dream that sort of, uh, crushed the original dream, but replaced it with something I would say that was even better. And that, that's part of the shocking nature of the situation, right? Like, obviously, Cheryl was not just moved by scientific curiosity, but out of real love and concern for Sid. And she continues to be moved by that sense of uh, responsibility to him for, uh, she thinks, or she claims, uh, robbing him of his dream. And so she, she remains perfectly dutiful to him um, uh, in, a in, in a way where if he just were to realize that, he would realize he had everything that he ever wanted, right, as a person. Uh, like the, the, the notion from the Odyssey that the best life a person can have is to be married and for it to be a good marriage because that is a benefit to friends to talk about and it, it is a pain to enemies to see, as the Phaikians teach us. And that Sid could have that. It, it's as if, like, what we're circling around here is that if he could just sacrifice his youthful dream of trying to go beyond that which is human by leaving the, the earth and accept the earthly limitations of his existence, he could then have a, an apex level existence as a man who gets to procreate and have a family. Um, it's almost as if he prefigures what cloud is going to have to face and do when it comes to Aries and Tifa if one is the ideal and one is the real one if one is the Leah and one is the Rachel oh yeah that's really an interesting comparison there I wonder how much Sid sees himself in cloud when you like sort of first come on the scene there because um, he immediately sort of takes a an interest in in your party because uh, he's expecting um, the Shinra to pay a visit and uh, tell him whether, you know, he's going to get another shot after all these years. That's what he takes their visit to to mean. And his um, his whole life has, yeah, has revolved around this this missed opportunity as he sees it, right? But 
but I think you you put your finger on it. Yeah, he's he um, didn't miss the opportunity. He did it. He did exactly uh, the the most noble thing he could have done. Um, and and it's great because she was doing the exact same thing from her her side of it. She was willing to sacrifice herself so that he could complete the mission, right? To um, to have the successful launch, and and she tries to tell him to let the the rockets go because she's willing to um, sacrifice herself, and he refuses, right? He refuses to make that um, that that like that cost to pay that cost, uh, and so it seems like deep down he does know that he he has made the right he has made the correct um, hierarchy of the virtues that he's after there the values rather um, he's he's ordered them correctly he just hasn't like allowed himself to see that uh, for for so long and the the way that he actually um, the way that he sort of holds on to that too is with the tiny bronco and I, I was curious like what you think of the the parallel the contrast between the main rocket which is leaning and rusting and you know uh, a failure to launch versus the tiny bronco which he has there in his backyard and it's like his baby well you you make me think a couple of very interesting things i think the tiny bronco is um clearly uh a symbol for <laughs> for sid himself the tiny like bad little attitude like it is itself a noble little thing but it is in miniature it is like a, a t like <laughs> a stallion that can fit on your desk and where whereas if it were stallion sized it would be terrifying it is actually miniature size and so that's essentially the threat of Sid he has no nothing to negotiate with he has a skill for something that Shinra scrapped when they transitioned from weapons which is interesting that they were in weapons um, I earlier made a connection between that and one of our other projects. I, I can't remember which, but where they start off as weapons manufacturers. But, uh, but they, they moved from that to Mako because it was more profitable. So they're a very flexible com company. But the fact that he's a tiny Bronco, I think is like he is a, or he, he flies the tiny Bronco because that's what he's been reduced to. Sort of a tiny uh, Bronco, an effigy of himself, sort of a, a satire of himself and that's why he's called the captain even uh i think in sort of satirical way what is he captain of he's like captain jack sparrow at the beginning of um at the beginning of pirates of the caribbean but i also want to make a connection between him and another like failed king who we'll have a chance to meet pretty soon if we do that side quest in wutai the king who just lies around all day who's sort of been defeated and it makes me think that there is a larger theme at play here between um, sort of figures of authority in the parochial place who have been outmoded by this like sort of nation state, sort of super ideal Shinra, um, who have been sort of demasculated or denatured by that. And I, I wonder to what extent that's actually represented by like differing kingdoms that you fight for that fall in the other Final Fantasy games, whether that's an even larger thing than just in this one. Oh, right, yeah, because there's always a Sid character yes. or at least the ones I'm thinking of. Uh, um, the one that I first played as a kid was on Super Nintendo in America was released as Final Fantasy 2. And it had a Sid character. 
and he was the um the guy who built the airship that the kingdom uh was like misusing for military purposes when he had not intended it to be um you know he he wanted to like defend the weak but instead they were just like flying around bombing and stealing the crystals from all the other kingdoms so uh anyway that that character Sid is like a recurring kind of like the chocobos um little motif that runs through the final fantasy games and the airships too right they they sort of come together uh the idea that you at a certain point in the game are going to be able to move not just rapidly on a chocobo or with the um the different kind of land vehicles that you might get you know like you have the dune buggy after golden saucer in this game uh but you'll eventually get to fly right uh and you know that that's ahead and you look forward to it throughout the game. And then at a certain point you get to it. And it's funny because here it looks like you're about to get to do it, right? You're escaping on the tiny Bronco um, and there's bullets flying all around. But, you know, like whenever bullets are flying around the heroes, they never hit you because that's that's not how the story goes. But, of course, one does and it, it wrecks the propeller and the tiny Bronco becomes, instead of an airship, a uh, plane, it just becomes a boat. You have this like little um flotation device that helps you get around to new parts of the map so you're just it's it's a really funny kind of reflection of sid's whole failure to launch in that you, it's like recapitulated there um as after he sort of like joins your party uh and and throws his lot in with you guys against the shinra uh you crash land in the water near wutai as it happens yeah, I wonder to what extent that's supposed to itself be a metaphor or symbol for sort of the ideal process of aging in which you sacrifice sort of um, capacity or potential for experience or or skill or ability to acquire skill quickly for that that which is crystallized experience. So you give up, say, your fluid IQ, your ability to learn things quickly for your crystallized IQ, which is sort of your built up store of things you know. So you can't fly around like you once could and just pick up information. But now you can sail about in a more, uh, in a slower, more plodding, not as far reaching, but but uh, very helpful, much more helpful than walking around sort of way. And I wonder if that's sort of like the idea behind what we have gained in perspective from Sid's um, Sid's coming, or maybe if he were an ideal adult, he would give us the ability to fly because he would teach us some mastery or something like that. But uh, at this point, since he's very much imperfect, he he gives us a new perspective that helps move us along faster, even though it is uh, very much like hit by a bullet and not uh, not ideal by any means. We immediately yeah. against its limitations. For example, out to sea can't get over mountains. It is very limited, but it, it does further our reach for the moment. Well, yeah, it's like you sort of make do and, um, and improvise with it. And he's interesting too, because as soon as he joins your party, he uh, gets his whole backstory filled in. Whereas with the others so far, you have, you have to sort of just uh, pal around with them for a while before you come across, you know, the town, which holds their their past and and you sort of experience it at that point um 
Whereas with him, it's it's all kind of right out in the open. And he's like, he's a very frank sort of character in that way. Like, you know exactly what you're getting with him. He's not perfect. He's rough around the edges. But he's got, um, you know, such a good heart. I think the way that that comes through with the tiny Bronco, you know, he <laughs> not entirely willingly uh, sort of lends it to you, you know. And it's um, it's kind of a a hullabaloo as you're escaping it gets shot down but he's not like at least so far that i've played he's not like mad at you over that you know he's sort of like he takes the adventure in stride he's like okay here's here's the next thing that that's happening now basically and uh as as rude as he is to to shira you know he clearly um wants to like make a, a good impression you know like he really wants you to feel at home in his house and um and feel comfortable right and so he's uh he's a cool he's a cool final character to have join your party because he in a way sort of like sums up a lot of what's been going on with the other party members and maybe there's an exception to this because of course the two secret characters we haven't really seen their backstory yet and there's also kate sith but i don't know quite what to do with um in this little scheme he doesn't really fit quite uh quite as much as the others do um but in some sense i i guess i want to say that sid uh is a kind of like cap to the yeah the, the captain right of of your um your traveling your companions um and that's yeah sadly enough you know one of them will soon be lost as well yeah, we really are sort of speeding up towards the end of disc one, as it were here. And uh, I actually I have one question for you though. Something interesting about uh, Sid is that the context for our meeting there is that Shinra is about to show back up. And so who shows up is Palmer, and there's a boss battle there. I wanted to ask you a little about that, about what you thought about that, but also, and and that's for who's going to essentially take. The tiny Bronco from uh, Sid and what you thought that might mean, uh, maybe. And uh, so, also, I I was wondering whether you thought there was something to the fact that they've already taken Shinra has already taken, and I'm making sort of scare quotes when I say that his first dream, and now they want to take even his tiny Bronco away, and what you thought that might mean. Oh man, yeah, they're just shameless, aren't they? Right, like. Um... Palmer is kind of a, a cretin, <laughs> he like sort of capers around and dances. And, um, you know, he's like fat and old and uh, just very unappealing in, in lots of obvious ways. Um, but he's kind of great, too, because he's got this little gun which shoots things like um, it basically like casts uh, level two spells on you. But it's just called a Mako gun. Um, so he doesn't, he's like, he really doesn't have any obvious talents or abilities. Um, he takes you on uh, one against your whole party. And it's like, it's kind of a joke. Like the fight is uh, after some of the stuff you've been through up in the mountains, right? It's just like, are you serious right now? And, and he, and he drops a really like rad piece of armor uh, called the Eden coat, yeah. uh, which is like, really good compared to the stuff you've you've had so far um and has a very evocative name um not sure quite what to do with that but 
So he's like, he's kind of, yeah, he's kind of like comic relief, I want to say. Uh, and in a way, um, is, is a bit of like a scapegoat almost for those, those elements of Sid's um, dream that haven't panned out. Um, and you get to just kind of wail on him and it's fun. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the way that um, the way that he's kind of like sneaking around in the backyard and trying to steal the thing, isn't it Shira who um, warns you that that's what's going on? Like she's just yes. like, oh, by the way, I think he's about to steal the tiny Bronco. You might want to do something about that. Yeah, she's uh, clear-sighted about it. That's awesome. <laughs> um, there was one other thing, uh, another item that you get in town. If you talk to the old man who's hanging out kind of in the middle of town, he'll uh, ask you if you want to look up at the rocket ship with him. And he's kind of an old dreamer as well. You know, he's in a way like maybe the good side of Sid's lost dreams, you know, whereas Palmer's the, the bad that needs to be purged. This old man is like the good that needs to be held onto, that, that sort of aspirational side of things, that hopeful looking up and musing on uh, what could have been. Because um, that's, you know, that's powerful. And that, that is, there's a truth to that. And if you do look up at the rocket with him, he gives you another really, really good piece of um, equipment, a, uh, a new sword for Cloud that has a really um, Eastern sounding name. It's like Yoshi Yuki. And it's, it's got only two materia slots. So it's like a bit of a trade-off, but it, um, its power goes up if one of your allies is KO'd. Um, so that's kind of cool. Like it's, it's almost like a limit break type of thing, right? It's like you have to um, be in, in a dire strait for its true power to be unleashed. Uh, I think between the two of them, there, there's definitely some kind of thematic uh, stuff going on with with your new character Sid and with the the broader kind of theme of what has been in the past and sort of working through that for the present and the future. Yeah, and just two things I'd like to say are a I I just noticed this playing through yesterday the Tifa Aries situation has sort of been on the back burner for a little while at this point. I think ever since you started going to Cosmo Canyon. And on from that, sort of the Sephiroth narrative sort of taken the front seat. But I also wanted to suggest as an interpretation that the fact that Shinra was now taking everything from Sid in, in the way that he would see it, like the, his biggest dream and now even his tiny little substitute dream, is uh, sort of the biblical quote, to he who has more will be given, to he who has not everything will be taken, and the parable of the talents. And um, that... Um, Sort of, I think the idea there is that once, once you miss your dream, if you continue to maintain that as a dream, even though it is now a dream rooted in the past and no longer in the present, that it will continue to eat up like a black hole your life. And that everything that you have now will disappear if you maintain that dream because it is not an active dream that enables you to live in the world. And so it's actually just a matter of time before you lose everything you have because you're not producing anything new. And so, you know, it's, again, it reminds me of Booth Rotom and that sort of dried up stream. It's like, well, if it's not actively flowing, you're not going to be able to get water from there every day. You're going to have to find a more equilibrated solution. And that, that sort of, that 
that's part of why Sid jumps the opportunity for this new adventure with you, even though the tiny Bronco gets shot down because he no longer cares about the tiny Bronco because now he has a new adventure. He doesn't need just a symbol of adventure, a symbol of freedom. He can actually be free with you. And so it's like, he's given up like, not the facade necessarily of adventure, but like sort of the accumulated store of that which adventure has produced for the capacity to have a new real adventure. Um, like logos or active thinking versus accumulated knowledge. And because his accumulated knowledge was not a full hero myth, right? There was a failure at the end. This is a new opportunity, a new life as far as he's concerned. It's like you're giving life to the old dead father. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because you wanted to talk a little bit about the the idea of the kind of um, outmoded authority, right? And I guess I think I could see something you were saying made me think you might be making a connection between the the two um, potential love interests in uh, Eris and Tifa and the rocket versus the tiny Bronco. Was that where you were going with that? Like, Eris that's, very, that's very interesting too. Well, how would you see that? Because I could again see that in sort of a Rachel and Leah way. And like one is like the big dream and one is like the, the yeah, more exactly. suitable, like realistic dream. Yeah, um, yeah, right. Like Eris, Eris being the rocket ship. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's not going to work out. And Tifa being the tiny Bronco who's right. She's, she's the girl next door. Right. And, um, and on the other hand, like to turn the symbol around another way, you can say, right. The, the old authority is the, the rocket ship or something like that. And the, the new potential for adventure and exploration and new growth is the tiny Bronco. It's the, it's less, um, you know, it's less to look at maybe, but it ha it has that dynamic, uh, potential in it and ultimately it's not fatally flawed like the uh like uh you know the rocket the rocket never flies it's yeah. never operational it's sort of like a figure of the anima as the unions would say or of the feminine that is not adapted to reality and so you just you know maybe read comics and play video games your whole life living in your mom's basement and you don't ever pursue a real relationship with a real woman because none of the none of them can be as great as the Jean Grey that you read about in your comics. And that's functionally what you believe a woman actually is. And that's not going to work in reality by, you know, it's not even close. And so um, it, that's sort of what like Aries represents, like the perfect woman who only ever does like the most episodically, symbolically perfect things. She's gathering flowers and she's healing you. And she's being really sympathetic to something important and meaningful. And like all of this, is, these are aspects of the feminine, but you know, there's a lot more to it as well. And especially to an embodied human like Tifa, who has her own flaws, you know, and way of being, she's not just the ideal figure of the feminine. But all that said, the tiny Bronco, the more mundane thing, even when shot out of the sky maintains a real use. And so it's really helpful really useful actually operant in the world and so i wonder if that might also add to your interpretation of uh the connection between both the rocket ship uh, as a super dream and uh the tiny bronco as a manifestation of a smaller but more operational dream 
um, and the love connections Tifa and Aries or Aerith. Yeah, yeah. I see. I hadn't thought about how it's kind of in the background of the story until you mentioned that. But it it totally is. It's it's totally the case that the story um, has not focused on the rest of the party uh, very much at all. It's really just focused in on like individual characters for the past several like chapters or or parts of the game, so to speak. Um, and the the last point in which it's sort of brought up is when you're back in Gongaga. Um, it's really like foregrounded there when you meet Zach's parents. And that's an interesting place because it doesn't really correspond to any, uh, it doesn't correspond, it, it corresponds to the party member who is not there, right? Who's Zach, um, yeah. rather than to one of the others. And And you can talk to them both at the fire, a campfire uh, scene thing going on, or Eternal Flame, I guess, let's call it that, in Cosmo Canyon. And they both sort of give Cloud the cold so shoulder there. So yeah, it's like there, there's a definite um, distancing from that whole romantic theme. But that's gonna be, that's gonna change in a big way shortly when you go back to uh, Gold Saucer. Although, again, you can sort of like, you kind of have some options at this point in the game maybe for the first time, like where to go next, you can go and um, maybe you're sort of prompted almost to go into Wutai because that's sort of where you crash land. Um, although <laughs> it's, I, I don't think I'm going to choose to do it that way. I, I'd rather put that off for now because um, you do need to go uh, eventually back to um, the gold saucer. And I think this is when, I think this is when the date actually happens. Yeah, this is right because we are getting very close to going to the bone village and to the forbidden city. And I mean, things are starting to move very fast. In fact, I, I feel myself pushed by the narrative or drawn in faster. And I, I also wanted to mention and ask you about, it's so interesting because it seems like all aspects of life, when you first start an endeavor, everything is interesting and new and difficult about it. And the neuroscientists, so it says Peterson in the last 20 years or so, I figured out that's actually because you use more of your brain while you're acquiring the skill or the knowledge, the procedural and representational and articulating aspects of knowing something, right? And um, <clears throat> that while you play the video game, the first couple of hours seem so long. We were talking about this. Like the first five hours seem like so, such a long time. And that's all this time in. Shinra, but now now I've played for, you know, like 25 hours, mostly because I leave it on while I'm taking notes. But it's like I don't even notice the time. And I'd say that's even sort of similar to this podcast endeavor, right? It's like, it's the thing that now we just do. And that part of what the game, I think, is trying to tell us is that, you know, if you applied this sort of skilled effort towards a goal, towards anything, that you would improve in the same way that this character does. And uh, although this is oblique to that, I like that you say that Zack is the character missing from this, sort of like we were talking about the missing Neville or Luna and Harry Potter last week uh, on our other podcast, but that uh, Zack is the hero that you should be or that you're pretending to be. So in that way, it makes me think that just as Cloud is sort of... Um, fraudulently trying to uh, identify with, I'm, I'm missing the verb there, but that's what I mean to say, uh, with uh, Zach, so are you as the game player fraudulently trying to identify with the achievements 
of those in the game who actually have to sort of suffer for it and work for it. You're just sort of like pressing some buttons, right? Even though it does take some skill, it's not the same sort of thing for you as it would be for the characters in the game who have, you know, sort of everything at stake. You're a level or two removed from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I think it's really interesting then that um, to think about in what sense this is the final fantasy, right? What, in what sense this is the fantasy um, for the person playing the game. Uh, that, that's got to be a big part of it, right? The, the illusion of achievement um, and the kind of dramatization of certain difficulties and things uh, in a way that is, of course, far short of what it would actually be like if you can sort of imagine, right, like actually <laughs> running around fighting monsters, um, dealing with like a evil corporation and a super uh, villain, basically. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's still, I think it's still not a... Um, it's not entirely harsh on the person playing the game, um, again, because you are continually um, adding to your to your party, right? And so it's not it's not that you're simply um, identified with Cloud, although he's clearly like the prime person. He's always in the party. He's never subbed out. Um, you're identified in a way with the party as a whole too. And, and you sort of are like the, the narrator as much as you are the main character of this story. And that's kind of cool too, because it gives you, I mean, it gives you a little bit more perspective um, as each new person gain, or each new person joins the party, as each party member uh, deals with their, their dark, you know, backstory, and it's brought into the, into the light and sort of like integrated. Um, that that's a really interesting process which i think it is the it is exactly as difficult for the player to understand as it is for the characters to understand right in that respect they are sort of um there's a parody uh you know you're you're of course only pushing buttons and they're you know experiencing the emotions or whatever but i think you know the player is experiencing the emotions as well uh yeah. vicariously or you know, maybe almost immediately, depending on how closely you do associate yourself, identify with this or that party member. Um, and it, so it's a really, yeah, it's a really cool, it's a really cool dynamic, I guess, um, especially once you start to talk about it with your friends who are also playing the game, right? Like that, that was always one of my favorite things about playing these kind of games. Well, then I have two last questions for you. What do you think first about what we find out in this sort of city, this uh, Shinra made city. Again, another Shinra made city where like there are the remains of uh, Shinra's old projects and how Shinra just sort of will disregard and throw you away in sort of a matrix, the source summoning old programs in a functional way out to field sort of way that what we find out is that we've been going the wrong direction to get Sephiroth the entire time and that Rufus and the Turks have maintained have stayed on their trail, which sort of suggests to me a symbolic interpretation that there is no Sephiroth, but rather Sephiroth is an ideal that like you, the individual versus them, the evil corporate entity is pursuing. And that the real antagonism is between like uh, these two visions of the future, like 
clouds, which is a like can't face himself nobody who could potentially be somebody, and Shinra, who's like Draco Malfoy on steroids and can just do whatever he wants and has inherited the world. I'm not sure he's like a, a Lex Luthor or an evil Tony Stark. Um, but yeah, what do you think about the fact that we've been going the wrong way? Yeah, well, that's, you know, a little bit um, scary to think about, right? Because you can make all the progress you want, but if you're not, and I think this connects with your other point too, right? If you're not chasing the right ideal, then all the progress you're making is so much wasted effort and detrimental mess that someone else is going to have to clean up, right? Or or suffer through. And yeah, so, but I think it is especially interesting when you think about it in terms of like what direction you have been going um in in i think in the terms of the map um you you need to chase uh sephiroth back north eventually i don't remember which way he supposedly has gone at this point in the game um but like the whole the whole like east west dynamic that we've seen from the beginning of the game is pretty interesting here where you've you've come from a very western looking sort of place in midgar um and those little towns throughout the like junon harbor and um calm they look like little you know like and nibelheim even is like a weird little mountain town somewhere in the alps or something right but then you come to uh you crash land and you're you're right by wutai and wutai is a very eastern looking sort of place right like very um, traditional architecture and um, Yuffie is, you know, she's from there. She's a kind of like little ninja type character, whereas you're a soldier um, with all with all that kind of baggage of history. So there's something real interesting going on with, yeah, the idea of of going the wrong direction and now having the capacity all of a sudden to go in pretty much any direction, right, with the... Um, with the tiny Bronco. I think that's a great, yeah, that's a great question about um, like what is the real conflict here? Is, uh, is Sephiroth maybe a kind of red herring? I mean, in some respect, that makes you sound a lot like Sid, right? Because you've been chasing one thing and the thing that you should have been paying attention to has been there all along. Mm. And that, that's, I think, a major comment that the game is making right now. I think that's brilliant that you put it that way because I'm definitely, again, finding myself rushing through the game, especially, especially as it gains momentum. Do I get more and more focused in on getting through the humdrum to get to the story elements? Do the, the humdrum gets less, less and less exciting, ex exploring even for a while gets much less exciting. It's actually much later in the game that I think I do much more exploring as I start to sort of enjoy the game for what it is. But at this moment, I'm starting to get really gripped. In fact, I accidentally went all the way up to the Bone Village and was like, when, do, when can I get this dang lunar harp? I'm ready to go into this Forbidden Forest and hear that creepy synthesizer music that they play in the Forbidden City, which I love so much. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. So this is part of the game where you sort of don't have a lot of direction on where to go next, and so you kind of you kind of are are forced to explore. But I, I agree that you sort of want to also because you have 
suddenly this new character at your disposal, this new vehicle, there's all these places you can go, um, new enemies, yeah, new music. And I did want to, that reminded me, I did want to mention how cool um, Sid's little musical theme is um, that we get to hear at this part. Um, And also the way that it sort of like has its variation in the 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 chase scene getting shot down um it's so it's (laughs) it's again like a little bit of comic relief i think you know sid is like hanging on um the wing as you're trying to gain altitude and then uh you get shot down and it's like there's a kind of uh, musical accompaniment to that that like you know sounds like falling 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 uh into the into the sea but his music you know is so heroic and like um uh noble and triumphant it's it's really awesome i i love sid he's he's one of my favorite characters yeah yeah and you know it makes me wonder to one extent um rufus and his band are sort of like the team rocket and sephiroth is sort of like the (laughs) two or something like that yeah, but I mean, I mean, they're sort of like the archetypal, like, disequilibrated group. The group that get, steps on its own toes. That because of its evilness, sort of a platonic yeah. point, they can't put it together in an efficient enough way to beat you who are motivated by good, who actually keeps the ideal. And that they're sort of like a poor or anti-ideal, anti-heroic group ideal. Whereas Sephiroth is like anti-heroic in that, again, he, like so many antagonists, is high skill, low sociability. And because of that, can't win, right? Like the Joker ultimately can't win because he doesn't have enough people following him. Uh, uh, the, like, I, I'm forgetting every single villain who meets this Lex Luthor. You know, often it is the super group, Avengers or uh, the Justice League, that can come together to defeat the sole villain. Uh, because they trust each other. So the greatest power is trust because it can defeat, you know, sort of a perfidious enemy. And so that's why Sephiroth, even though he's so hyper-powerful, is ultimately going to uh, not be as equilibrated as you, as like sort of this ne'er-do-well group of individuals. Um, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I no, wonder I, to what extent that is a broad archetype in video games and like animated stuff as it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got a lot of, um, definitely a lot of examples that you can pull to mind. And the, the point about um, Sephiroth, his vision versus Shinra and their vision versus Cloud, and his sort of as yet unarticulated (laughs) vision of what, what the good would look like, right? Like, what's the, what's the goal each of them is kind of striving for. it is really interesting to sort of let them play out in a story. And I think that's part of why those, those kinds of um, almost cliche uh, examples are, are so tenacious, right? Like there's something really interesting about watching what happens when those sort of extreme visions um, are allowed to clash. And, um, it makes me think that, yeah, that there must be something of each of those kinds of uh, things going on in, inside each of us, right? Like we, we're drawn to them uh, to different extent, like based on our, you know, character and life experience and whatnot. But, 
but there's something like sort of universal about those. And it's endlessly uh, interesting to watch them play out, whether it's, you know, on stage or in a, at the movie theater, in the comics, on the video game. Um, it's, yeah, I feel like this game just kind of takes its place right there amongst them. And I think it does a better job than most at um, making it an interesting, uh, an interesting play. Yeah, and, you know, to what extent, I mean, when you really think about the group of individuals, like, to what extent an entire individual and his or her perspective, especially after, like, you know, several years of life, like, once they're in their 20s or 30s or even older, like, what they can bring to the table in a group setting, uh, you know, combating the evils of the world compared to what you can handle just on your own, is a joke. It seems to be sort of the idea behind like the nation state. It's like, look at how much we can achieve because so many of us work together. It's like nobody, there could be no internet if there were only one person working around and a bunch of, you know, bumbling fools trying to deal, you know, evilly with each other and trying to achieve an ideal. Well, they, they, not, they just don't ever have the manpower or make it because making real things is hard enough when you trust everybody. Like that's how, that's the level of optimization we're heading for as a, a people or as an ideal in this game, it looks like. It's like, and these people don't need to be perfect. We just need to be mean, pursuing something. I don't know, what, what is it exactly that we are pursuing that gives us a superior moral framework than Sephiroth or Rufus? Uh, that, that's a, I think that's... That's sort of the question that's that's open at this point in this in the storyline, right? Because because it's clearly not simply um, blow up reactors. At yeah, this because we have the right? terrorists, right? I was wondering that because exactly like well, where is our moral high ground at this point? Because it's it's very easy to look at it maybe from you know your perspective when you first played the game. I don't know about you, but I was definitely very interested in Sephiroth you know, and um, his side of things like taking him down or figuring out what he was up to. But I was probably equally or even more interested in the romantic side of the story, which, again, is like about to get highlighted in a pretty big way. Um, and I don't know whether it's an entirely pure motivation, <laughs> but it's a very powerful one, right, to like try to um, understand what that's all about to um to love someone who seems so like unattainable right and then realize that oh like you have a chance whoa isn't that crazy um and and so like that side of the story i think um yeah again might not be moral high ground exactly or immediately um but it is in a way the thing that you have to at least like pass through uh, in order to get to a, a clearer vision of what you're, what you're really trying to do, which I guess is like, you know, save the world basically. Well, and you're, you're giving me a powerful vision of what these games do so well, which is what I think gives them such a powerful siren like effect over our attentions, which is that they manifest and make you embody or, or take on the frame of reference of the protagonist, both in terms of dominance 
hierarchy competition, direct dominance hierarchy competition with Rufus slash Sephiroth, like the ultimate big brother, the ultimate figure who is beyond you, the ultimate like symbol of the zone of proximal development, sort of like Achilles or Heracles are the ultimate like demigods who you cannot defeat. And um, uh, sorry, I, I got caught up in thinking about Heracles. I'm forgetting my, uh, the thrust of my, my point there. <laughs> Wes. Um, oh, well, it sounded like you're making a, a comparison maybe between the kind of interest that you would have in a Sephiroth oh, oh, yes, character yes, yeah. versus the, the romantic side gotcha. quest. Uh, gotcha. thing. Sorry. Sorry. I got too into that. I, uh, so yeah, so it, it makes you manifest, uh, and th this is specifically masculine, but could also be feminine. Uh, it, it taps into and sort of yonk pangsepts like fundamental motivational systems. He's a neuroscientist, an affective neuroscientist. He died just a few years ago, sadly. Um, but uh, that your competition drive, right? You want to beat Sephiroth more than anything. Like you want to save the world, but you want to beat Sephiroth. It's a good thing that those goals coincide. On the other hand, and this is related in humans, so say the evolutionary psychologists and biologists, is connected sort of your romantic life. You're these two women who are sort of fighting for your heart or you're fighting for their hearts. And uh, when you juxtapose like sort of this violent competition to save the world with like a romantic interest in somebody else, that doesn't seem to gel. But what we know from say Peterson, for example, is the higher you rise in the dominance hierarchy, the more preferential you are seen as a mating partner. And something we know from dataclism, Christian Rudder is actually that 85% uh, of men are perceived as below average men to women. And so the, the fundamental narrative of the game is correct. The closer you come to beating Sephiroth, the closer you come to getting the girl like Ares. I think it's also sort of the fundamental narrative in a video game, sort of like Mario going after Peach and overcoming a dragon to do it. And that um, these are that these pursuits are intuitively, but also in a nature or evolutionary and narrative way connected. And that when you interweave them as effectively as, like, say these these sort of primeval video games do, Final Fantasies, Mario's, then you get this maximal uh, emotional effect that I think creates bonding in humans with the narrative, because it is the it is the evolutionary narrative of man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is an interesting way to look at it. And I, I definitely would like to um, hear you and Oscar talk more about the Great Men podcast and yes. hear you and uh, Matt Roos talking more about the, the consilience, these kinds of um, scientific articles and things. And I like that you are finding ways to bring those different projects uh, together like this. It's, I think it's a really cool um, like field that's sort of just, just burgeoning right now, um, making these, these kinds of cross uh, disciplinary connections and, and connecting like high culture and low culture, you know, like a popular culture rather, like we're, we're trying to do here. So yeah, that is, um, that's, that's worth, further consideration by all means yeah
Well, and I mean, this is just as this is sort of a hybrid project on this hybrid technology about a game, which is about hybridization of the world and how things transform and exist in a transformative state, what sort of forces act eternally on the landscape of these worlds and can be consciously allowed in and allowed out to some extent. And that is the environment of man. Well, I think we'll be eternally interested in these sorts of stories. And, you know, it makes me think more and more that maybe Dante and Virgil got it right, Wes. Maybe at some point we'll have to create some great game ourselves, something that will make it so that the next masters after us are more sophisticated than we and that the, the game continues in the right direction. I wonder to what extent it's enough for us to interpret. Um, that's, that's cool. Yeah, because I, as a kid, you know, playing all these games, I was constantly also like coming up with, you know, very imitative, but nevertheless like uh, earnest attempts to to design um, stories that would be good for video games. I, I have those somewhere. I would uh, love to go back and like uh, try to develop those more. I just don't know anything about programming. So we're gonna need a programmer if we're gonna make a great video game. Well, you know, uh, you know where there's, you know, where two or three are gathered in his name, you know, and maybe the name is the next great story. And what's wrong with that? Uh, if there's anything I ever hear complained about from people, it's that, you know, where, where's the next Star Wars? Where's the next Harry Potter? Where's the next great thing coming from? I think that's what we're always wanting, right? We always want the next pyramids, the next internet. More than anything, we want to be alive for great discoveries, even beyond like just like being alive during a great war is a great atrocity, being alive during a time of great invention, I think, is considered a great boon. And so the invention of a great story or a great puzzle or map to be to be you know dug through to be to sharpen one's intellect against through maximal exploration, I think would be one you know one hell of an endeavor. Right on. Well, cool. I think we're uh, at least on the on the threshold of starting such an endeavor. I I mean, at the very least, this is good research uh, for us to get started on it. It's been that's, fun. That's for sure. That's for sure. We are as yet scientists, and yet by the end of this, we may be poets. Hey, hey yeah. All right, All right. Well, episode twenty-five down. That's a quarter century uh, until a hundred, Wes. Yeah, that seems like we might we might get to around 100 episodes for this thing before we're done. That would be a cool Dantesque number to hit. Uh, but, oh, wait, where are we at for, that's for side quests total, right? That's combining um, the two projects we've done so far. Okay, so we're yeah. going to have to give that some more thought. Okay. Yeah, so I think we're, yeah, well, I'd have to look at it, but it must be something like 13 or okay. 14 for this. Yeah, so yeah. Still pretty still a pretty healthy amount in yeah well cool always a pleasure yeah always a pleasure so thanks next. again